0: I had a dream last night, the stones of my house were falling down, the walls crumbled,
1: and I did not know how to hold them up.
2: When the old king dies amidst turmoil and conspiracy, a young man flees his country. He builds himself up in a new land, gains prosperity and status, but he's still seen as a stranger. He finally returns at an old age, and realises that what he thought he wanted was to return, but what he needed was to be reunited with himself, to be restored to himself. In this episode of the Young Vic Podcast, we will look at this 4,000 year old Egyptian story how it inspires the play Changing Destiny, and how writer Ben Okri retells it to speak both to the now and to Africa's history. Later in the episode, the show's director Kwame Kweyama will be talking to Egyptologist Ellison Hedges. They talk mummies and myths and the origins of theatre, and how we might be mistaken about where these are. My name is Tonki, and today we are taking a deep dive to demystify the story and the world of Sinuhe, the Warrior King, in Changing Destiny.
1: Now transport yourself to a campfire 4,000 years ago, when this tale was first told.
2: That's actor Joan Eola. She performs Changing Destiny together with Ashley Jangaza. They decide each night who plays Sinuhe through a game of rock, paper, scissors.
1: I am a royal guard.
2: I love this country to my bones.
1: I should be holding up the system. But the system is a mess.
2: Okay, so what are Changing Destiny and the poem of Sunuha the Warrior King actually about? Let's do a quick 30-second synopsis. It starts around the year 1960 BCE. At the time, Egypt is ruled by a pharaoh called and He'd come to power in what we would nowadays probably call a military coup, and he's been in power for about 30 years. And then turmoil begins, unrest, there are conspiracies, the people are unhappy and the pharaoh dies suddenly and mysteriously. Sanuhe is a soldier in the pharaoh's army, and when he hears the news of the pharaoh's death, he realizes this is going to have deep consequences for him. Here is how that is worded in the original poem read here by Kwame Kwe ama
0: The words had a terrible effect on me. My mind went blank, my heart pounded in my chest, and I trembled from head to foot at once. I knew I was not safe in Egypt. I had to flee. I had to find somewhere to hide.
2: But why does Sinuhe flee? Well, that question has kept people busy for a few thousand years now. You see, like many great works of literature, the poem of Sinuhe the Warrior King has questions in it that resist single, simple answers.
1: I need to run. I need to run for my life.
2: Why does Sinuhe take onto his shoulders the guilt for something that he hasn't done? Does he fear he will be implicated in the conspiracy? Is he guilty by association? I mean, there are so many questions there. Is his mind playing tricks on him? Does he become haunted by his own mind? Does he fear the repercussions of the pharaoh's death, who, as a soldier, he was meant to protect, of course? Or does he fear more unrest and instability under the pharaoh's successor? You know, maybe what matters here is actually not the answer to any of these questions, But the fact that the story invites so many different questions in the first place, so many different readings of what motivates what people do and the decisions they make in critical moments, and maybe that goes some way to explaining why this African text has endured for so long. You know, it predates the Odyssey and the Iliad by a thousand years, but has elements of both. It predates Hamlet by three and a half millennia, but has elements of it
3: since the dawn of time we have known what it is like to find a way to live and thrive under a sky different from the one under which we were
2: born that's writer ben okri he describes why the story still resonates to him today
3: we have known what it is like to make existential decisions that alter forever the tone and nature of our lives these eternal questions pursue us whether we're at home or our exiles we all feel in our blood an attachment to our lands we all feel but something is lost in us when we are unduly severed from it.
2: So back to the story. Sunuhe flees Egypt, goes on a long and dangerous journey. He travels by night and he hides by day. The original poem describes him floating in a rudderless boat across the waters. He crosses the desert where he finally collapses, certain he is going to die. But is saved by a friendly nomad. He's given shelter, he's given work.
1: I've gone from being a soldier in the royal palace in Egypt to someone who looks after the cattle of a sheik.
2: You know, maybe there's another clue there to the enduring resonance of Senuhe. It's not why he fled that matters. It is the fact that he fled that makes Senuhe deserving of refuge. He He crossed the sea... He made it across the desert. That awakens the humanity of his new host. Here's Ben Okri again on how the story touches on home and displacement.
3: Literature makes us aware of the invisible umbilical cords that connect us to the universe, to the land and to our communities. In both the ancient and the modern world, the nature of home is complex and undergoes constant mutation. Historical events alter all things, a single war can shift the configuration of what we call home. Today you are free, but tomorrow finds you a refugee.
1: Night after night I dream that I'm back in Egypt. Sometimes I dream of obscure places that I can barely remember. Sometimes I'm a child running free in the grounds of Luxor Temple. I am lost and I can't find my way out.
2: Senuhe is captured by soldiers from Retenu ends up even more displaced in what is nowadays Syria. He survives on the lowliest of jobs.
1: I bury their dead. I dig ditches. I carry their slop with the smell of orger in my nose. I work all day. I do all of the work they are too proud to do.
2: His unrelenting work ethic catches the eye of the king, and more importantly, it catches the eye of the king's daughter. So, slowly but steadily, Sunuhe works his way up in his new land. He gains status, he gains respect. But here's the thing, wherever he goes, prejudice follows him. The higher Sunuhe rises in society, the more he runs into prejudice against foreigners. Influential figures in the circles of the king stoke division. They spread xenophobic rumours about foreigners. And you know, maybe that's the final clue about the power of the Sinuhe story. That it is of its time and of all times. It recorded the present at the time and it predicted a future 4,000 years away. And what's extraordinary, the Sunuhe character likely didn't exist It is a fiction story. So the kings, the empires, the other historical figures, that worlds did exist, but that character is invented. So whoever devised and wrote and performed the Sinuhe story 4,000 years ago, did they create the very first work of narrative fiction? Did they create the first dramatisation? The first, this is inspired by true events?
0: I have seen pain in your eyes all these years. Sometimes you are unable to stand up to your true height. I've often caught you gazing towards the eastern horizon, your eyes mute with tears that could not be shed. I really want to see the true brightness of your spirit and feel your ease upon this earth. Only your homeland can give you this. You have to be brave, Sinue.
2: And you know, maybe the enduring value of the Sinuhe tale sits not in a message, but in a set of questions. In questions like the ones you just heard there in Ben O'Kri's adaptation of the story. Questions of what happens when you're spiritually bereft, when you're separated from the ground that made you you. What happens when part of you is forever dwelling where you are not? More information on Changing Destiny is at our website at youngvig.org. And the music you heard there is the work of the show's composer, Tunde Jigede, and the show's sound designer, Zana. Now, for the next part of this episode, we are going to turn to the director of Changing Destiny, Kwame Kweama, and Egyptologist Alison Hedges from the University of Maryland.
0: First of all, I cannot tell you how overjoyed I am to speak to you. And secondly, tell me everything you know about Egyptian drama. Go. No. <laughs> no. But but in truth, tell me a little bit about why that why um, Egyptian drama fascinated you. Why why you're dedicating your your prestigious intellect to that area, uh, and why you know yeah why tell me why.
4: I actually started out as an actor, so I come from a theatrical background, and I found my way to Egyptology through classical Greek drama because I was interested, I was drawn to the to, to classical Greek uh, mm-hmm. texts and classical Greek drama, and I wanted to learn Greek. In that process, I was introduced to Egypt and Egyptian history and especially um, Egyptian religion. And um, I was instantly hooked. And if I think if you talk to a lot of Egyptologists, they, they will probably tell you the same thing. There's some moment at which they're just hooked. And I realized throughout all of my studies of, of Egyptology that I had not heard very much at all about uh, about drama and about performance. So I started digging Started um, started doing the research and found out that absolutely it's it's there. It's just been it hasn't been um, it's not talked about a lot, and um, so I had to I really had to to, to dig for some of that information.
0: What, what what are the the performance? What's the history of performance in the in the Egyptian theatrical canon, as it were?
4: One thing that's in that uh, it's important to to understand is that. It's not theater in the sense that um, that we normally think of it in this day and age, mm-hmm. um, and certainly in the in the in the uh, American and and British uh, European uh, tradition of theater. It's not theater that is performed for um, entertainment or for uh, or for monetary or for a. a to make money. It's-, it's What, it's, no money? No, no.
0: <laughs> but That, it's, sound, no that money. sounds very much like our tradition of theater right now.
4: <laughs> but the theater is done for a very specific purpose. So it is performed for um, religious purposes, for political purposes, civic pur- uh, civic purposes to achieve some kind of effect, to achieve some kind of um, of transformation or to confirm, say, confirm uh, the strength and power of the Pharaoh, for instance, that's a big one. Um, Or to to celebrate, um, in the case of the festival of Osiris, the, the Koyak festival, um, to celebrate uh, not only Osiris as a god, but, as, um, but the souls remembering and celebrating and honoring all of the souls of the deceased. A lot of people might call that ritual drama. That would certainly be an appropriate term, um, but it's not my favorite term because I think that when we use the term ritual or ritual drama, I think it, it limits it. I think it limits the theatrical um, uh, potential and the theatrical capacity. And I think there was a, a great deal of theatrical um, uh, capacity in these performances.
0: When, when you think about performance, so if you think about the tale of Sunuhe, if you think about the other, what I deem as performance poets or performance poems, where, where, where do you place that in relation to some of the famous Greek? performance, po- uh, you know, performance poets.
4: The tale of Sinuhe to me is very comparable to um, something like the Odyssey or the ah. Iliad. Yes, absolutely. Um, this is a tale that everyone knew. We know about it today because it was written. <laughs> it was written and copied, but um, that would not have been probably the main uh, way that it was distributed. It would have been told. It would have just been a story that was told and shared uh, of of and, and performed in that respect and being, you know, the 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 storytelling tradition, the oral tradition.
0: Who, who would that poet or or that storyteller who who would who would they tell that story to?
4: There were um, storytellers who came in and, and would would perform for the for the pharaoh, um, and for the court, for the pharaoh's uh, high officials, and that might have been where they where these stories began. In fact,
0: and, and talk to me a little bit about about getting to Egypt via Greece. I mean, I, I you know that, that some of the you know some of the Greek scholars you know spoke about Egypt in, in, in rather in rather glowing terms in terms of the route. Of of much or not of much, but but the root of many things that they would would go on to augment. But, um, how, how did you do that leap? I mean, and how did you feel when you started discovering? Oh, this story feels a little like that story. Only it's earlier or, or or older.
4: There was a lot of interaction. There was a lot of there was a lot of trade. In fact, in the Iliad. Um, There is mention of Egypt and there is mention of of the wealth of Egypt and the power of Egypt. So there's certainly um, a lot of there was a lot of admiration and respect for Egyptian culture on the side of the Greeks. There are many uh, uh, parallels between the Koyak festival and the um, the festival of 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 Dionysus. But we're talking about about uh, at least a thousand years between these two these two things. In my opinion, in my humble opinion, there is no doubt that there was influence there. There's no doubt that there that um, the Greeks were aware of Egypt and what was going on there, and aware of the customs and aware of um, the practices. And um, I think absolutely there was there was influence there. There was. Um, cultural influence there, which eventually became a cross-cultural uh, influence during the Ptolemaic period, much,
0: mm-hmm.
4: much later.
0: One of the questions that fascinates me is, as someone who, who understands, as you do, and have studied Egyptian drama, um, what, what, what text really pulls you? What's the text that you go, oh, oh, this, this touches my soul?
4: Mm. Uh, the Lamentations of Isis and Nephthys. Mm. yes the lamentations are so okay. you're familiar can
0: you tell us can you tell us a little bit about it for those un, who are uninitiated and then tell, tell us why it moves you so
4: absolutely um so if, if you you're familiar with the story of osiris yep um if i feel like i can yeah Or
0: skip, <laughs> skip, skip over that bit and
4: skip over the osiris
0: direct so, pieces of pieces all over the world and having to be collected and then reassembled as one in order to reconstitute the land. So, anyone who doesn't know, that's roughly our Osiris story.
4: (laughs) Exactly. So Isis and Nephthys are going in search of Osiris. Um, They have collected these these pieces, and it just makes me think of the... just the the grief and the pain of, of of having to make that journey and having to make to to collect those pieces, um, but also the the power of being able to come together. And I think it's 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 the two women. I think that's that's part of what what pulls me. Um, but the two women coming together and joining their their powers to re. Animate him to bring him back to life, to make him whole. It's,
0: um, almost, it's almost a precursor, or pre-pre-pre-pre-precursor to uh, you know Mary Shelley's Frank, you know Frankenstein. You're like you know you're putting a whole dead pieces together, right, in order to make it whole <laughs> and animate. It, it,
4: no, I know it doesn't. It's not very glamorous when you think of it that way, or romantic when you think of it
0: that yeah, way. Yeah, when you think about sewing the pieces together, How, however,
4: <laughs> right, right. It, there
0: is something beautiful and romantic about trying to reanimate, trying to repiece. Take exactly, the, trying to
4: bring, trying to bring him back. Um, and of course, that's the that's the um, that's the foundation of their whole uh, the 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 funerary tradition, the mummification, the tradition of mummification that that they um, wrapped him up in these linen bindings that's how they 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 made him him whole again
0: when you read and, and of course you said that you can read in middle egyptian as it were to mm-hmm. um like, what what does it sound like what what what, what part of vocabulary is uh, is there any part of the vocabulary that's all that of our modern vocabulary that's missing are you able to you know are you able to say it and in a poetic fashion? Can we hear the rhyme? Can we hear the, like, how do you approach reading it? Um, first of all, to yourself, and then as a former actress, reading it aloud. Right.
4: First, you take the, the hieroglyphs mm-hmm. and you have to uh, transliterate the hieroglyphs into a the Latin alphabet first. Um, at least that's that's the way that it has been done. There's got to be an easier way. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a philologist, but this is my little, there's gotta be an easier way guys. Um, But maybe, (laughs) but at least for, at least for those of us who use the Latin alphabet, this is the way to do it, which is to um, take the hieroglyphs, transliterate it into a Latin alphabet so that it's possible to read these words. so I'll give you, I'll give you an example. I actually, um, I staged a, a, a version of the Lamentations at the University of Maryland last year. And I wanted the, uh, the, the actors playing, uh, playing Isis and Nephes, I wanted them to read some of that um, Middle Egyptian out loud. Um, but I only had an English uh, copy of it. So,, um, I actually I did my own my own research to try and reverse <laughs> translate <Less engineered>. yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then I reached out to some of my my, uh, my colleagues in Egyptology who are much uh, uh, more masterful with language, um, to to translate just one just one line, which is the opening line. Um, um for Isis and nephthys, which is um, come to your house. So the Middle Egyptian was mi reperek, mi reperek, um me come to er per your house. Right. Um, it's actually quite surprising that this ancient Egyptian language is not is still like kind of structured in a very like close enough <laughs> in that way to <laughs> I mean, yeah. right to our to our language.
0: And what, I mean, again, I can't thank you enough. It's really beautiful to bathe in your knowledge and your love and passion.
4: Oh, that's very this sweet. Time.
0: <laughs> I mean, last kind of question for me, talk to me a little bit about, like, if you were introducing people to Egyptian literature, what would be the best way about it? What would you use? What would be the first piece you would use? What would, how how would you say, look, these are the towering works and but that this is this is the way in. I mean, it, it's a silly question because everybody will have different ways in. And you spoke about yours—the story us Os- mm-hmm. you know Osiris while you were standing next to a mummy—and then right. you go, "Oh my God, I'm in!" Right? <laughs> and, and 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 then you later, of course, discover that that you know Osiris, the wrapping, uh, you know, for mummification, is born out of this story, right? right. And all of a sudden, right. it becomes right. romantic and symbolic and kind of beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, not everybody's going to be standing in front of a mummy and knows the story of, Osir- you know, Osiris.
4: Sure, sure, yeah. I think, um, now of course I would love at this point to say The Tale of Seduhe <laughs> because that would tie in perfectly Beautiful. with Changing Destiny. Of course. Um, but I, I think especially for a young person, I would have them read The Tale of the Shipwrecked Sailor. hmm the Tale of the Shipwreck Sailor, which is the same period as Sunuhe. Uh, so it was also written in Middle Egyptian. Mm. And uh, but the story is um, it's a it's more fanciful. It's it's the story of another journey. It's another journey, story of being of being uh, displaced from your home. Mm. Um this man is, is, is shipwrecked. He loses his ship. He loses all of his, his crew. Uh, he ends up shipwrecked on this island, which turns out to be a, a magical island uh, where he meets this, um, this giant uh, snake that's like you know when reared up like 15 feet high and uh and covered in in gold and lapis lazuli and all of these these gems so it's a royal snake (laughs) and the the snake speaks to him and uh and they have a sort of meeting of the minds and they tell each other stories and um and in the end, of course, the one thing that the man wants more than anything, much like Senuhe, is to is to go home, is to return home, and to make sure that he um, that he dies at home, that he's buried at home. That's that's it's very that's a real um uh, mm-hmm. a big recurring theme in this ancient Egyptian literature. So the snake uh, the god helps him to do that to get there, and um, it's it's very short and it's just very whimsical and um and fun. Um so it's sort of like the <laughs> I like to think of it as like the kid version of of the tale of sinuhe. It's <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that would be the that would be the the one and then and then I would move on to to Sinuhe and some other some other works.
0: What will be the thing that you'll say you've learned. You know, that, you know, we all go on journeys, right? And forgive this feels really philosophical, but we all go on journeys. I'm an artist and, you know, sure. part of my journey as an artist is really quintessentially to find out um, who I am, right? <clears throat> who I am and where I am. Right. I, w- I would describe, I think. Um, as someone who has studied Egyptian drama, like, like wh- why are you doing it?
4: Wow, these are some tough questions. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is great. This is great. I, I guess I'm just getting the word out there about this, um, which I know sounds very. Um...
0: Oh, that sounds beautiful.
4: <laughs> yeah, I want um, I want people to know about this, um, especially in the context of theater history. I think this is this is uh, an important point in theater history, an important, uh, source, uh, uh, for all of the, the theater that, that, that has come out of Greece before Greece, there was this, there was Egypt, there were, uh, there were other, there were other performances, other kinds of dramas and other cultures as well. But I think Egypt is, is the first place that I have found where you have that, um, that sort of marriage of, of of text and literature with the oral tradition. I just want people to know about it.
0: <laughs> I think that is absolutely beautiful. I just want people to know.
4: It's yeah. partly
0: why it's, it's you know, it's partly why why we produce Sunuhe is right? we just want people to know. Absolutely. We just want people to know it exists. And, and I'm so well,
4: glad
0: you did. Yeah, you know, and people could go on and do their own versions and and blow it up and deconstruct. and But actually it's just letting people know uh, the shoulders we stand on.
4: There are other dramas. Uh, there are other Egyptian dramas. Um, and I feel certain that there are some out there that haven't been found yet. What,
0: what are the Egyptian dramas? Just give us a quick few of those.
4: So another big one that I wanted to mention is The Triumph of Horus, um, which was performed at the uh, Temple of Horus in Edfu, and it was produced in England in the in the late sixties, early seventies. The Triumph of Horus. Um, it was it was um, translated and edited and published by um, Herbert Walter Fairman, and it was performed for the first time in the modern era in at the Padgate College of 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 uh, drama education. Wow. And. The text was discovered on the walls of the temple of Horus and Edfu. So it's, it's literally, it's etched into the walls there. Mm-hmm. And it's the, it's the text as well as images. So there are images of these scenes that give us some kind of idea of maybe what these performances might have looked like.
0: I can't thank you enough for sharing your, your good vibrations. And oh, of course you. your expertise on Egyptian drama.
2: You can find more information on Changing Destiny and the tale of Senuhe in the show notes. You will also find a link there to the article What Makes Us Human by Ben Okri, a fragment of which you heard earlier in this episode. The quote from the story of Senuhe comes from Dr. Joyus Tildesley's book Myths and Legends of Ancient Egypt, published by Penguin. You can find The Young Vic on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Young Vic Theatre and on YouTube at Young Vic London. Thanks for listening.